So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 12. We'll be in verses 13 to 34. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 34. When there's a courtroom trial, lawyers have the freedom to do what is called a cross-examination with a witness. It's a time when a witness is on a witness stand and the lawyer, the opposing lawyer of that witness, they begin to ask a series of aggressive and detailed questions. And the goal of the cross-examination is to cast doubt and discredit the testimony of the witness being questioned. Well, in this morning's passage, Jesus will continue to be cross-examined by the Sanhedrin. And they are continuing to ask these questions to discredit him that they may kill him. But instead of them discrediting Jesus, in his answers, they will be amazed by him and he will put them on hush mode. So Mark 2, please stand for the reading of God's word. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Jesus spoke to them, isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the scribes approached him when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well. He asked him, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, 
And there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question him any longer. You may be seated. And so our big idea for this morning's passage is this. Jesus truthfully and authoritatively teaches the way of God. Jesus truthfully and authoritatively. And through answering a series of questions, Jesus authoritatively teaches us the way of God regarding First, citizenship. Second, the resurrection. Third, the greatest commandment. He authoritatively teaches the way of God regarding citizenship, the resurrection, and the greatest commandment. First, citizenship. Look at verse 13 and 14. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks. Nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? And so the questioning continues. Last week we saw the Sanhedrin get got by Jesus. And so they tagged the Pharisees and the Herodians. Two groups, they weren't friends. But once again, as they did in chapter 3, verse 6 of the Gospel of Mark. And did you see their goal? It is to trap Jesus, to catch him slipping with his words. You see, they thought that if they got Jesus talking, he would make a verbal mistake, lose credibility, credibility which would open the door for them to kill him. And so first they flattered Jesus, gassing him up with insincere compliments that he may let down his guard. And though they flattered Jesus, the compliments were true. Did you see it? It says, we know that you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. You see, Jesus is truthful. He hasn't, nor will he ever lie. He wasn't concerned about his reputation before man. His concern has always been pleasing God the Father. And he's impartial. He doesn't show favoritism based on ethnicity, gender, or class. Rather, he loves all, serves all. And commands all to repent and believe the gospel. And beloved, as Jesus' followers, these things should also be true of us because Christ has saved us. We are to put away falsehood. We are to only fear God and seek to please him. We shouldn't show partiality to anyone and we ought to faithfully Is this true of us? It should be. 
I can't help but wonder how much different would cities and this country be if this was true of all churches around our country. We would then truly be salt and light in a city set on a hill. Beloved, may this be true of Midtown Baptist Church. And so this group, they go from flattering to questioning. They say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Pretty much asking, is it obedience to God to pay taxes to Caesar? You see, taxes were instituted in 6 AD by Tiberius or Caesar Tiberius. He was the emperor of Rome, and they were imposed. You see, this question was intended to back Jesus into a corner. His answer would have real repercussions. You see, if Jesus said yes, he'd be discredited by the Jews because they despised Caesar and the Roman taxes. They would accuse Uncle Tom. Now, if he said no, he would be accused of being an anarchist, an insurrectionist, and Rome would come down on him and kill him. You see, they got him. At least that's what they thought. Look at verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. You see, Jesus being omniscient, he discerned their insincerity. John chapter 2 verse 24 says that he knows what's in man's heart. You see, their hearts were like how our hearts are, not hidden from the Son of God. Instead, he sees all of it. And not only did he discern their insincerity, he called them out and asked for a denarius, which was worth 18 cents. He got one and asked about the image and inscription of that coin. Now, this coin bore Caesar's image. He had money created after his image. And the inscription on it was Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. You see, Caesar claimed divine honors. This question raises the stakes all the more on how Jesus would answer. Just look how Jesus responded. Verse 17, he told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. You see, he gave a different answer than what they expected. And the point of his answer is as what one pastor would say, image equals ownership. Image equals ownership. You see, Caesar was the emperor and had the authority, had the authority to oppose taxes. And the coins bore his image, and so Jesus said, give them to him. But Caesar doesn't get us, because our allegiance and worship should go to God. And the reason is because we don't bear Caesar's image, but we bear God's image. And so our worship should go to God alone. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 speaks to the fact that we are made in God's image. It said, then God said, so God created man in his own image. 
He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And so our worship and our hope, they don't go to governing authorities, but to the one true jump. You see, beloved, politicians should not get our worship and devotion. We are not made in the image of Caesar, nor are we made in the image of President Joe Biden or Donald J. Trump or Barack Obama, or Vice President Kamala Harris, or Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi, or Senator Mitch McConnell, nor are we made in the image of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. You see, they don't own us, so they shouldn't get our worship. But we bear God's image. He alone gets our entire self our affections, our devotion, and our worship, and our hope. You see, Jesus, here he commands, pay your taxes. And at the same time, he simultaneously rejected the worship of Caesar. You see, worshiping governing authorities is idolatry because God commands that we should worship him alone. Now, God, he has established he has sovereign authority, and he has, he has given and established the limitations of the government's authority. And our responsibility to government should never hinder our obedience to God. But instead, it's rooted in God's appointment of government. And God has spoken on how we should relate to the governing authorities He's spoken on this matter in passages like Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. In those verses, we learn that we should honor the governing authorities. We should pay our taxes. We should pray for those who are in leadership. And we should submit to them except in things opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ. On those matters, then we should follow the example of the apostles in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, where we say that we are to obey God rather than man. In those moments where they're commanding something that is opposed to the will of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we are to practice civil disobedience and be willing to suffer the consequences. The early church did this when they refused to confess that Caesar is Lord because Jesus is Lord. Black people did this when they dined and sat in spaces that had the sign whites only. Or when they refused to sit at the back of the bus. You see, our responsibility to the Lord far surpasses our responsibility to government. Jesus communicates that obedience to God is all governing authorities. You see, beloved, we don't leave our faith at the door when practicing citizenship. But instead, we do these things in obedience to God for the glory of God. You see, the governing authorities, they would get our compliance but not our worship. In America, in this political parties, the political parties are polarizing, and they labor for our affections and our hope. Beloved, they may get our vote, but may they never get our hope. You see, we need to make sure that we ourselves are heeding Jesus' words, that we give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, 
and to God the things that are God's. The question for us is, is our allegiance or party, or is it with God? What ways are you tempted to give? These things would be good to discuss. It would be good for us to pray for one another in this because we are not exempt in giving our devotion to political parties, to politicians over Jesus. You see, our devotion to Christ should impact how we relate to governing authorities. And it should be that way despite how we may feel about them. You see, our, our whole selves should be devoted to God. God created us, not Caesar. Christ saved us, not our world leaders. Salvation is not in government and in the policies, but in Jesus Christ alone. You see, Caesar, sadly, he thought he was Lord. He thought he was the son of God. But he now knows that Jesus is Lord. And one day, every knee will bow, including Caesar's and every other world leader. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, that is not preach politics, but we preach Christ crucified, risen, and reigning. And because he has saved us, may his lordship over our lives be displayed in how we relate to governing authorities. Jesus answered the question, and it said that they were utterly amazed. You see, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they were stunned at Jesus' words. Had no further questions. Stumped. And so what happened? Well, the next interrogators approached the bench. Which brings us to our second point. The resurrection. Jesus' teaching on the resurrection. Look at verse 18 and 19. Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and questioned him. Teacher... Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. So the Sadducees, they were a religious and political group that likely rose during the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then the Sadducees, they only saw the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the scriptures, as authoritative. They didn't believe in the resurrection because they assumed that it wasn't mentioned or hinted at in the Torah. Instead, they believed in extinction, that once a person dies, that's it. They, re they rejected verses that hinted at the resurrection, verses like Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, and Ezekiel chapter 37. You see, according to Acts 23... The resurrection wasn't the only thing that they rejected. They also rejected angels, demons, and they didn't believe in spirits. And the crazy thing, not the crazy thing, but the thing is, they were the anomaly in their day because everyone else believed in the resurrection. And so they approached Jesus, and first they quoted Genesis chapter 38, verse 8, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, 
it refers to what is called a leveret marriage. It's when a man marries his brother's uh, widow. See, and a man just died, and so his brother marries his brother's wife and bears a child to preserve the name, legacy, and property of the deceased brother. The law commanded Israel to do this. And so the Sadducees, they're asking Jesus a question about the resurrection in light of it. And the motive for them asking this question was to prove a point. What they're trying to do is show that they're right about the resurrection. You see, their goal is they would give a hypothetical situation as their attempt to show the stupidity of the resurrection. Because they viewed it to be foolish. So they ask, verse 20, there were men dying, left no offspring. The second also took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? And so they give the hypothetical situation. Man got married. Died with no children, and so all the brothers married her in obedience to Deuteronomy 25, and all died with no children, and so they think that it's dumb for there to be a resurrection. They think that um, it's, yeah, it's dumb to be a resurrection, and one important thing to know is during that time, as it relates to the resurrection, they viewed it to be more as a continuation of this life, except more glorious. And so seeing that in this life, there were people were marrying and being given in marriage, they believe that that would happen in the resurrection. And so they're asking this question, thinking that it's foolish to believe in a resurrection. And so they're like, so whose wife will she be? Look how Jesus responded. Verse 24. Jesus spoke to them, scriptures or the power of God. Jesus says that you're dead wrong. And there are two things that you don't know. The scriptures and the power of God. You see, they thought they were experts in both. They thought they were on the level of all Madden. But Jesus tells them that they're novice. They're actually rookies. They don't know their Bibles. And so Jesus gives a two-part answer where he authoritatively teaches about God's power to resurrect the dead. And that the resurrection is in scripture. First, he talks about God's power. He says, for when they rise from the dead. You see, Jesus, he rejected the idea of extinction and affirmed the resurrection of the dead by God's power. Now, how did he do it? He said, when they rise from the dead. He didn't say if they rise, but when they rise. You see, the word when communicates certainty assurance that it will happen, whereas if communicates possibility and uncertainty. Jesus declares that there will be a resurrection. Now, how will they rise? Well, it will not be by the power of man, because, a man, because man don't have authority over death, but it will be by God's glorious power. You see, death is an enemy that entered the world through sin. Death is the sting of sin. And God has defeated death, and one day he will happen. 
Well, it was through Jesus Christ. You see, when sin entered into the world, God promised that there will be one who would come to reverse the curse. And this coming one is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his earthly ministry, in his incarnation, John chapter 11, verse 25, he said that I am the resurrection and the life. And not only that, in do, through his earthly ministry, he promised that he will rise from the dead. And then he fulfilled it. He died on the cross and bore our sins, bearing God's wrath and God's judgment for our sins. And three days later, he resurrected from the grave. Bodily resurrection. Not imaginary, but bodily. Actually, a resurrection. You see, he is without sin. He TKO'd death through his death and resurrection. His bodily resurrection wasn't an old wives' tale, but rather it actually happened. You see, the resurrection from the dead, it comes through Jesus. Who are united to him by faith, we have experienced spiritual resurrection. Where we were once spiritually dead and God made us alive together with Christ. And when Jesus Christ returns, he'll annihilate death. And we will experience bodily resurrection. You see, our resurrection from the dead is not a hoax or wishful thinking, but it is as certain as Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Beloved, do you believe this? Scripture speaks to this. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also bring life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. There's a whole chapter on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, to where it makes known that death came through Adam, but in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, all are made alive. That he is the first fruits of resurrection. And when he returns, we who have placed our faith in him will rise with him. Bodily resurrection power. Jesus goes on to educate them on the resurrection. He says that when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. You see, Jesus states that the resurrection will be different. There won't be any marriages in glory. He says we'll be like angels, meaning we'll be serving God. And ceaselessly worshiping him. We will be joyfully singing and worshiping the lamb who was slain for his work of redemption that saved us. You see, beloved, marriage, as beautiful and as wonderful as it is, it is bound to this life only. It's a shadow and the substance is Jesus Christ and the church. In glory, there will be the marriage supper of the Lamb when the bride will be with the bridegroom. And so marrying and giving in marriage is bound to this life, and it should shape our view of marriage. You see, we should celebrate it. We should pray for it. But we shouldn't hope in it. You see, beloved, we're not promised marriage in this life but through faith in Jesus Christ, we're promised something better.
resurrection. Glorified bodies. So may our hope not be in good things that God hasn't promised us, but may it be in what God has promised us. Resurrection. May we await that day more than we await the possibility of being married. And so Jesus, he goes on to educate them on the resurrection from Scripture. Look at verses 26 and 27. He says, as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. You see, Jesus, he taught on the resurrection by appealing to the book of Exodus, which is so mind-blowing and strategic because this was a book that the Sadducees would have viewed as authoritative. And so what Jesus, the, the passage that Jesus is referring to is Exodus chapter 3, where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, where he promised Israel's deliverance from Egypt through Moses. And as he revealed himself to Moses... He said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Horton here. God didn't say I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. If he were to say that, that would imply inst- extinction. But he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Implying that though they were physically dead, they were still alive and he is still their God. You see, the covenant promises that God made to Abraham and that he passed on to Isaac and to Jacob, God is promising that he will fulfill them. They will experience them in the resurrection. You see, what's interesting is that the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. On your own time, read Hebrews chapter 11, and you will see this all the more. The patriarchs believed in the resurrection. Verse 9 and 10 gets at the fact that how Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Verses 13 and 16 says that they saw the promises from afar, greeted them, and were temporary residents on earth and desired a better place, a heavenly one makes the Sadducees all the more crazy for not believing in the resurrection. You see, though the patriarchs died, they were still alive. You see, what happens at death is not extinction, but separation. Where one's spirit is separated from their body, and they either go to heaven to be with the Lord, or to Hades, where they suffer God's judgment for their sins. And where one goes is contingent upon how they responded to Jesus Christ in this life. And when Christ returns, there will be a resurrection. The wicked will rise and they will be judged and thrown into hell. Well, they will experience eternally the wrath of the Lamb for rejecting Jesus. And those who have trusted in Christ will dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth. 
You see, because of Jesus' finished work, beloved, we don't have to fear death. You see, our last breath here will be our first breath in God's benevolent presence. It's why the Apostle Paul would say that to die is gain. It's why he would say that to be... You see, we who are in Christ, we have nothing to fear, not even death itself. As the great rapper Trip Lee would say, it's just a doorway that takes us to our faithful lover. And one day, Jesus will return, and we will have glorified bodies in the resurrection. You see, Jesus, he rebuked the Sadducees and then educated them on the resurrection. After he hushed them, there was a third person who came, and they had a question. And it was about the greatest commandment, which brings us to our third and final point. Look at verse 28. One of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked them, which command is the most important of all? You see, Mark, he singled out one scribe, and his disposition towards Jesus appeared to be different. He seems like he approached Jesus out of admiration for Jesus in light of how Jesus answered the previous questions. You see, like the others, they asked, he asked a question. But unlike the others, he appeared to ask out of sincerity, which leads us to ask the question, beloved, what's your heart posture when you're asking questions about the teachings of Scripture? What is it? Is it to look for some sort of loophole? Is it to actually learn? Beloved, may we check our motives and may they be godly. And the question that the scribe asked, it was regarding the law. You see, there were 613 commands, and so he wanted to know which one was the chief command. Look how Jesus answered. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You see, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, which is part of this morning's scripture reading. It's referred to as the Shema, which means hear. It means listen with the intent to obey. And it starts out about the Lord, and it's a reminder that Israel was in covenant relationship with him. It says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He alone is the Lord. There is no other God but him. He is Yahweh, the God of the covenant, the self-existing and self-sufficient one. He is one and he is triune. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God and yet there is only one God. And then he goes on. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
You see, the greatest commandment is to love God. Contrary to what one might assume, one might assume that the greatest command would focus on some sort of action, do this. One might assume that it focuses on some sort of prohibition, don't do this. But instead, it focuses on our affections and our devotion, that we are to love God. It's a command to love God supremely and comprehensively, to love him with our entire being. Every facet of our being is to be devoted to God, our affections, our emotions, our spirit, our intellect, and our will. It should be devoted to the Lord because he is the Lord. What this gets at is that our entire life should be oriented Godward. It should revolve around God like how the planets revolve around the sun. He should be the centerpiece of our universe. Every part of us is to be about him, the one who loves us, who made us. Beloved. Do you love God with your entire being? Is loving God your all-consuming reality? Or is God in competition for your love? You see, we're commanded not to love God with part of us, but with all of us. Beloved, is that true of you? You see, this command comes with an implicit expectation that we know God and that we're continually growing in our knowledge of him and his will. You see, out of love for him, we want to commune with him, learn more about him, his will, and obey him. You see, if we love someone, we want to be with that person and our knowledge of God should lead to a greater love for adoration of and delight in him, which should impact how we live before him. You see, love for God impacts what we do and don't do because we aim to please the one who loved us. It impacts what we say and don't say, how we speak to our spouse, our children. It impacts Everything because we want to glorify him. Jesus said that the greatest command is to love God. But he didn't stop there. He went on. He backdoed it with a second command, which is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these. The command to love your neighbor as yourself, it comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And what this gets at is the fact that we should love neighbor fellow image bearers, and seek the good and well-being of others. Now, due to our flesh, we may try to limit who is our neighbor. So we try to limit it to our circle of friends or people who look like us or people who have the same common interest as us or people who's in the same class as us or people who vote like us. But in Luke 10, our neighbor, including our enemies. And he makes known that the standard of love is not how they love us, but how we love ourselves. 
You see, the command assumes that we love ourselves, love ourselves too much. And so this is a command to be others-centered. We're to do to people what we want them to do to us. And we want people to bear our burdens, connect with us, host us, encourage us, serve us, be patient with us, and pray for us then we are to do these very things with others, with our neighbors. Beloved, do we live this way with one another, with the covenant community? Do we live this way as a church with each other? Do we live this way with our neighbors, who we work with, who lives next to us? Is this the way that we live? You see, we are to love God and others. That's how life should be lived. And so that's how we actually live our best life now. You see, nowadays, our culture talks about self-love. And beloved, the best way to love yourself is to give yourself to God and obey him. You see, beloved, if self-love isn't oriented Godward, then it's not love. It's idolatry. You see, these to love God, we will love our neighbors. And we love our neighbors because we love God and he commanded us to love our neighbors. 1 John chapter 5, verse 2 gets at this where it says, This is how we know that we love God's children. When we love God and obey his commands. How we know we love God's children? By loving God and obeying his commands where he himself commands us to love one another. Beloved, do you love God and one another as God has commanded? You see, if we were to obey these commands, we would look like Jesus. There's no one who, whose life was more oriented Godward than Jesus's. And there's no one who loved neighbor more than Jesus. He perfectly obeyed God's commands, even to the point of death. Man, he loved us and gave himself up for us. And since Christ has saved us, our lives should look more like his. Loving God supremely and loving neighbor. These two commands are convicting because we don't do them perfectly. Even as John prayed in the prayer of confession. We haven't done this perfectly for one single moment. And our disobedience towards God and our sin towards others reveals how much we don't love God with our whole hearts and how much we don't love neighbor as ourselves. And as convicting as this passage is, it should lead us to praise God for Christ and his sacrifice. You see, his death on a cross effectively atone for all the times that we did not love God and that we did not love neighbor. He has washed us with his blood. And through faith in him, we are justified before God. And by his grace, we're saved and his spirit now dwells within us who helps us to grow. And so if you're not a Christian, I am glad you're here. 
Friends, you were created by God to love him and love neighbor. Neither of which you have done nor can you do in your own strength. You see, by sinning against God in these ways, you have merited his wrath. But the very God whom you haven't loved, he loves sinners. In his love, he sent his son to come and die in the place of sinners, in the place of all who would trust in him. And three days later, he resurrected from the dead. And so all whose faith is in Jesus will be forgiven. Friends, I would implore you to turn from your rebellion and to trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. If you want to know more, you can talk with any of the members after service. We would love to have these conversations with you. And not only that, but let me, let me talk to the children real quick. You see, children, God made you to love him and to love others. And because we're sinners, we don't love God, nor do we love our neighbors as we should. And that's why we need Jesus. We need forgiveness. We need a new heart. We need his spirit to help us. And all of these things we receive when we trust in Christ. So uh, you want to grow in your love for God and love for others? It don't start with doing it. It starts with trusting in Jesus Christ. That is the very first stand to love God and others. Trust in Jesus. And so on your way home, I would encourage you to ask your parents, why must one first trust in Jesus before they can actually love God and neighbor? Look at verse 32 and 33. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, and there is no other one except for him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and to love him with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. You see, the scribe, he affirmed Jesus' answer and said that obedience to him is better than sacrifice. And so it appeared that he went from admiration to affirmation. And look how Jesus responded. Verse 34. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question him any longer. You see, Jesus authoritatively told him that he's not far from the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus being the king... And bringing the kingdom, he knows who's on the inside and who's on the outside. Now, this was a striking statement, which should have provoked reflection and a follow-up question of how do I get into them, not in it? And so how do I get in? You see, the scribe's admiration and affirmation of Jesus' teaching is cool, but that's not how one gets into the kingdom. You enter it by trusting in Jesus Christ. Admiration and affirmation of Jesus doesn't benefit anyone unless it's accompanied with faith in Jesus Christ. You see, one is either inside the kingdom or outside of it. To not be far from it is to be on the outside. And beloved, we don't want people to be on the outside but on the inside. So may we not settle for people's admiration of Jesus, 
and affirmation of his teaching apart from faith. Because with that, that person remains lost. But may we labor and call people to turn and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. One only gets in through him. May we be faithful to this. Let's pray. God, we praise you for your love, for your grace and kindness. God, we so often haven't loved you. God, and yet, instead of leaving us in sin and in rebellion and under your wrath, in your love to redeem, to bear the wrath that we rightfully deserve, to reconcile us to yourself. God, you have revealed your ways. Well, if we're not left wondering or pondering or confused about what is your way on how we should practice citizenship or your way as it relates to the resurrection or your way as it relates to the great commandment, Lord, you don't leave us in the dark, but you shed light. And it is through your word. God, in response to your love for us, may we love and cherish you. And may we faithfully proclaim the gospel of Christ, calling people to turn and trust in him. Listen, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so in the passage, we saw this scribe have admiration for Jesus. We saw him affirm Jesus' words. As I said, those two things alone is not what gets you into the kingdom. We need Christ in order to get in and we receive him by faith and so in response let's sing of this glorious truth that all I have is Christ stand with me and let's sing